What a treat to be gathered together as local FYC churches to express something of the unity that we share and the fellowship and the friendship. The Puritans um, used to describe the gospel as being like a diamond, beautiful, costly, precious. And yet, just like a diamond that has many sides, the gospel also has many sides and with the slightest rotation, so you, you spot something new, there's a new reflection, a new glimmer, a new sparkle, new beauty, in, in perhaps a different way that you've never quite noticed before or appreciated. And, and so it's been for me these last couple of weeks as I've prepared for this talk from Zechariah. It's been the pleasure of spending time in a book that I've, I've not actually preached from before. And so we're going to be gazing at the, the diamond from the perspective of Zechariah for a bit. A bit of background, it's the prophecy written to the Lord's people. They've been um, removed from the land and they're coming back from exile. Um, similar times to Ezra and Nehemiah, but God has, has brought them back into the land that he promised them. And to be totally honest with you, and maybe this is why we're not so familiar with Zechariah as a church more broadly, maybe why it's something of a lesser known prophecy, it is a bit confusing. It is a complicated one in a number of ways. The first half of the book is a bit easier. The first half of Zechariah contains a prophecy for their time and their place. But then the second half stretches ahead and we see redemption for future time or, or future times, multiple mountain peaks in mind. And you get that peculiar back and forth as well in the second half, this mix of, of blessing and judgment that often you find coupled together on the day of the Lord when he comes to visit. For example, he says Israel's enemies will be destroyed, in chapter 9, but then also he's very clear that there will be false prophets and, and false shepherds from among his own people who will also be judged because they've not represented him faithfully as they ought to. As well as that, he promises he will protect his faithful people, he will preserve them. And indeed, you'll see glimpses of Gentile nations on the same footing as Israel, worshipping God together. It's a peculiar mix. At the very heart of the section, though, at the very heart of the second half, you get this refrain, this idea, again and again, and it's a hopeful one. There's a presence of a, of a shepherd king whom the Lord will send to gather his dispersed people back to himself, and who is going to come and who will bring salvation to his people. Why will God do this? Why will he send this shepherd king? Well... Chapter 9, verse 11, because of the blood of his covenant, he says. And this humble king, he's going to come from the tribe of, of Judah, chapter 10. And the story unfolds. And it all seems to go horribly wrong. Because this shepherd, this king whom the Lord sends, well, he will end up being rejected by the people he's come for. And it's confusing. But on a day like today, and at a time like this, clearly it is a story that is laden with significance. Because you see, the cross was not a surprise, or a mistake, or a blunder, but a story of fulfilment. God in his kindness told us in advance what was going to happen. And, and so to understand a day like today, and a time like this, we need to understand what he wrote about it beforehand, what's gone before. 
The cross is a story of promises fulfilled. It's the answer to the types and patterns of the Old Testament. It's the climax of God's plans and purposes for his world. It's what we've been waiting for. And maybe we know the various psalms that speak of the cross. The Gospel writers use them to help us get a window into what's going on. Think Psalm 22 or Psalm 35 as Jesus hangs on the cross. The words he uses are loaded, deliberate. And maybe we know Isaiah. He he shapes our grasp of the cross. The suffering servant, the one who was pierced for our transgressions, who, who has suffered for our iniquities. I said, you know, I feel rather sorry for Zechariah. He is the most frequently cited Old Testament book when it comes to understanding what's going on at the cross, but we hardly know him. He seems to be a friend that we ought to have, but he feels pretty distant. Through Holy Week, the last week or so of now remembering coming up to the cross, at least four times, the Gospel writers use Zechariah's prophecy to help us understand what's going on. And if you want to scribble it down or flick quickly, then do. But Palm Sunday, Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And there's Zechariah. Or Zechariah 13, verse 7. The scattering of the disciples, secondly. Awake sword against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Mark 14 explicitly uses that verse. Or Zechariah 11, 12-13, you see the, the people selling the Lord out for 30 pieces of silver. And then in Zechariah 12, verse 10, fourthly, where we'll be in a moment... There is piercing and there is weeping. The shepherd, God himself even, will be pierced. I think Zechariah ought to be a closer friend than he probably is. So come back with me to those verses, please, in chapter 12 and 13. They are extraordinary verses. And they raise, perhaps, all kinds of questions for us. Two big surprises we're going to pick up on. The first one is this, and it's a simple one in one sense, but actually brings a whole load of questions with it. The first surprise is this, God is pierced. So have a zoom in with me, first of all, to 12 verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, says God, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and they will grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. In one sense, it's a very simple thing. But it raises all kinds of questions. The simple thing at the heart of the verse is God is pierced. That seems to be a physical act. It's not metaphorical. That The words used were normally the words of swords and weapons. And I guess the complicated bit then is how does that work? Firstly, that would require God taking on a body, and yet ours is the God who says, do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. So there's complications there. But then even, did you see it as I read it? They will look on me and they will mourn him. It's almost as if there's this unity and a distinction going on at the heart of these verses. 
looking on God, but mourning him. And anyway, why would, why would God let himself be pierced? And actually, if you add it to the context we've already seen, the Lord who is pierced is also, I think, the shepherd that we spoke of. So it's a confusing verse, perhaps, for the first reading, or perhaps if we're new to Christian things. It, it makes little sense, in some sense. One writer puts it like this, the mystery this verse creates is almost incomprehensible. For it tells us that God brings redemption to his people by entering into the experience of human suffering. And so do you see, to to the sceptic it may sound bizarre, but to the believer it sounds beautiful. Because it's, it's the cross that brings us redemption. It's the cross that brings us the clarity we need to understand Zechariah. Suddenly we see what was going on. And John, in his Gospel account, directly quotes from it, 19 verse 37, Jesus' side, do you remember, is, is pierced by a soldier. They make sure that he's dead. And so John says to us, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Suddenly we see what Zechariah means. Yet it's striking, the response of the people to this piercing, the response is that of mourning and of contrition. There seems to be a corporate mourning from all, folk from this tribe and their wives, and this tribe and their wives, Jerusalem and beyond, from the priestly and the royal families and beyond, men and women and husbands and wives and everyone are mourning. And of course that mourning was seen, it was seen firstly at the cross where the crowds even who had been baying for Jesus' blood seemed to leave beating their breasts in a sombre tone. Perhaps they sensed something of the culpability, something of compassion maybe. There was mourning there and you see it in Acts as the Bible unfolds, as the story spreads out, the news keeps going and Peter preaches to the guys in Jerusalem and the people there were visiting for Pentecost. You remember they were cut to the heart and they, and they mourn. What must we do, they ask him. But fast forward further and it reaches even people like us. It's, um, it shows my age and it's a little old and not uncontroversial, but do you remember the Passion of the Christ film um, directed by Mel Gibson? It's a film about the crucifixion. It wasn't uncontroversial. But there's one famous shot in it that I love. It's, It's the shot of them hammering the nails into the wrist of Jesus. It's pretty gory. But what's striking is the hand doing the hammering was actually the hand of Mel Gibson. In a later interview, he said that he included that to make the point that what they did to Jesus, well, it's a bit like a mirror in which we should all see our own rejection of God, our own culpability. He said, in some ways, I was party to it. And so we recognise that perhaps with all of humanity, we stand culpable this Good Friday. We're to mourn with the fact that with Adam and Eve, with the humanity at the cross, so we seek to remove God from our lives 
That's the first big surprise. God is pierced. The second surprise is this. We are forgiven. It's an extraordinary turnaround. This piercing leads to cleansing. This death leads to life. One writer puts it like this. From one angle, the cross shows us what we have in our hearts to do to God. But from the other angle, the cross shows us what God has in his heart to do for us. The opening of an inexhaustible source of forgiveness. So have a look down at 13 verse 1. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. And we're going to sing in a bit a slightly strange song about a fountain filled with blood, which to modern ears does sound a bit weird. But it was William Cooper's slight poetic license because, of course, blood is not mentioned in this verse. But he's blending together various themes and ideas from the fact that from the piercing comes cleansing and comes forgiveness. Which surely means that the piercing is actually a, a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that deals with sin, that deals with brokenness, that deals with our rebellion. And of course, when you consider it in those terms, when you see the depth of our sin, for God even to have to be pierced to deal with it, it just gives us a glimpse of the, the sinfulness of sin. That the corruption in our own hearts, that the gravity of our fallenness, the holiness of God even. I mean, you see, here's the beauty of this verse. If it's hard for us to believe that mankind in his sinfulness will seek to do away with God given half the chance, perhaps it's even harder to believe that in God's forgiveness there is a fountain that flows for us and keeps on flowing. It is totally extraordinary. It is utterly beautiful. I love this verse. We've been up to Shotover. And do you know the sandpit about halfway up? I'd say both as a child and as a parent, I have made dams in that sandpit and I have got totally covered in sand and muck. About halfway up, there's a stream, there's a spring in fact, that flows from the ground through a natural outcrop of sand. And you can move piles of sand and you can move logs and bark and barriers and blockages and you can try and stop the water. You can make these incredible dams feats of engineering and you think you've made the perfect one and you go back to have a picnic or play frisbee or football or something and you come back of course the water's found a way through however much you try and block it off however much you put there the water just keeps on coming it never stops at least not in my lifetime Well, so if you think you've sinned once too often, you're wrong. You're wrong because one was pierced and God has provided a spring that never stops flowing. 
And if you think that there comes a point, or there will come a point, when God will despair of your progress or lack of progress and will give up on you, you're wrong. Because one was pierced and God will provide a spring that never stops flowing. And if there's something on your conscience that weighs upon your heart, that something from your past, a skeleton in the closet, that, and you think it's just too big a deal, friends, you're wrong. Because one was pierced and God has provided a spring that never stops flowing. Whatever that might be, there will be all kinds of burdens in a room like this. A breadth of people here. No doubt there will be crippling things that will keep you up and awake at night. Things that bring you out in a cold sweat. Maybe, maybe thoughts or words and actions that you've thought and said and done and you wish you could just pull them back in again and you feel so ashamed. But friends, believe me that there is nothing too big for the cross to deal with. However much rubbish you pile up on the fountain of God's forgiveness, it will always wash it away. The spring will always win. God's grace is bigger than our sin. Hear that truth, friends. Hear that truth. One was pierced. And God has provided a spring that will never stop flowing. And really, we ought to press pause and stop and linger there. But I just want to scuttle a bit further along. Because I think Zechariah demands it. So there's one who is pierced, and this fountain flows. But actually, Zechariah looks ahead to an even brighter day for us, an even better day, a day of hope. And at the end of Zechariah, you see it coalescing with the end of the Bible. And the final place that this morning's passage is used in the Scriptures is actually in Revelation 1, verse 7. Do you remember, Jesus is described, and he is described in Zechariah-type terms. Let me remind you, look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him so shall it be Amen do you see the poignant image that Zechariah leaves us with is of a day when this fountain flows but not just to God's people if you like not just to Jerusalem but actually to a new world even on that day living water will flow out from Jerusalem half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter the Lord will be king over the whole earth on that day there will be one Lord writes John imagine that imagine a time of unity in our divided and fractured and unpleasant world in lots of ways that is such a good news for us to cling on to imagine a time when because one who was pierced, well, so now there's living water, and it's gushing over, and it's always on tap. It's water that will make God's people always clean and always forgiven, always pure, always righteous. All because God himself, his shepherd king, Jesus, was pierced for us. 
And in the darkness of this Good Friday morning, even in the sunshine, Zechariah says to us, we have a future hope. We have something to look forward to because one was pierced. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we, we say that we love you. We thank you for your extraordinary kindness to us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for giving us Zechariah, who gives us a fresh angle on your gospel diamond. We thank you for taking on flesh, Lord Jesus. Thank you for being pierced for your people. We thank you for the forgiveness that that brings. And we thank you for the future hope that we have. In your name we pray these things.